to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, beginning with verse number 1. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, and verse 1. Ever since the terrorist attacks of September 11th on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon building, I have been seeking the Lord concerning guidance and direction for this time. I've preached a number of sermons relating to spiritual issues, our hearts, our responses, and the like. But specifically in the arena of a prophetic understanding. Lord, I want you to help me. Uh, be like the men of Issachar, the scripture says, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I believe as Christians that God wants us to be people who have understanding of the times. We understand the significance and the strategic hour that we are living in, that we might be prepared, that we might respond accordingly. And there are three things that I am very, very certain of this morning. And the first is that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled in our time, that we are eyewitnesses of the fulfilling of prophetic scripture and the validity and the authority of scripture is being fulfilled right before our eyes in our day and hour. I am certain of the fact that Almighty God presides over the nations of the world. He is the King of all nations. And I am certain this morning that we are living in a critical time where the Holy Spirit is saying, you had better get right with God, you had better prepare your heart and be ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, a lot of people have been asking, what does all this mean? What is going to happen? There are sinners asking, are we living in the last days? When all of these events occurred, I was in a hotel in Santa Barbara, was asked to do a prayer remembrance service there. A lady that Mona and I know from Hawaii pipes up, you know what, all of this is written about in the book of Revelation. I didn't know she knew anything about the book of Revelation, but sure enough, here it comes. There are people who are living in fear and uncertainty as to what the future holds for America. And I believe it is helpful that a period of time has passed to allow the dust to settle so that we're not just simply reacting and then forgetting about it. But there are three things that really have stepped to the forefront of the world stage. And those three things are 
Israel, Islam, and the United States. And I begin to ask as many, you know, what are we to make of all of this? Does the Bible have anything to say? Is there any insight from Scripture that will give us understanding and help direct our paths in a way that will glorify God and accomplish His will and purpose in these last days? And I believe that there is. And as I mentioned earlier, I will tie this a great deal to what I preach on Wednesday as well. But I want to step back and look at the broad picture this morning, beginning in verse 1 through verse 16. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around Put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, and all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togomar, from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourselves and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Or one translation actually said, be an armorer. And many days, after many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, so this is not just talking about Ezekiel's time, it's reaching down into the future. In the latter years, you will be visited, or you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty and to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel shall dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them, riding on horses in a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And one other verse, get on to verse 23. Thus I will magnify myself, and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord. I want to talk first of all about Israel as God's time clock, because there is an inescapable uniqueness right here. David, in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, said, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, 
the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And so David asks that rhetorical question, uh, who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth God went to redeem for himself as a people? Now, this is not an exaggeration, but it is a statement of unavoidable truth. Even though there are many who would like to avoid it, uh, the truth remains that God has dealt with no other nation as he has dealt with the Jewish people. This is why the land and the people and the book and the Savior are forever inseparable. There is a uniqueness that is unavoidable, and this is what accounts for the miracle of Israel's survival. This is what accounts for the preservation of the Jewish people. Arnold Toynbee, one of the great American historians, said, As for long life, the Jews live on. The same peculiar people today, long ages after the Phoenicians and the Philistines have lost their identity. Their ancient Syriac neighbors have gone into the melting pot and have been reminted with new images and superscriptions while Israel has proved impervious to this alchemy. And one of the true wonders this morning in our world uh, is that since other nations who have been far greater in number, far greater in wealth and size, have come and gone... Along with this, uh, Israel's entire history has been one of constant conflict from the Philistines to the Russian pogroms to Haman uh, to Hitler. Uh, with all of these things, one of the great miracles is the survival of the Jewish people. And the Bible says that this is one of the last day's uh, linchpins. And that is why I read this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38 as he's talking about the latter years and the confederacy of nations uh, that will come against the land of Israel. And God says uh, specifically a people gathered from many nations, Israel brought out of the nations. Uh, and the significance of this is that without question, one of the great fulfillments of Bible prophecy in our lifetime is the rebirth uh, of the state or the nation of Israel. Just like Ezekiel's vision in chapter 37, that out of a valley of dead, dry bones would arise a living people, May 14, 1948, the state of Israel was reborn, ending almost 1,900 years of Jewish exile. It is like no other event in our lifetime. And what makes it so significant is that Bible prophecy ordained this miracle. Amos chapter 9, verse 14. God said, I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. We are talking about a prophetic linchpin. 
One man made this statement and said, Israel is the hinge country on which the world swings. In other words, it serves a strategic purpose in prophetic fulfillment. In Psalms 102, verse 13, it says, You will arise and have mercy on Zion, for the time to favor her has, uh, or yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Bible says there will be a set time where God once again shows favor to the land of Israel. And that when he does this, when the Lord shall build up Zion, it is a sign that he will soon return in his glory. This is written for a generation to come. God is saying that Israel is God's time clock to the nations. This is why the nation of Israel this morning is not a political accident. It is not the result of some political strategy, but it is evidence to the nations that God is true and that His Word is relevant uh, and His Word is absolutely reliable because the prophets again and again said that He was going to gather His people, the Jewish exiles from all the nations of the world. He was going to bring them once again back to their land, plant them in that land, and they were never again to be uprooted. See, it is this vision that is at the heart of the present-day conflict. Zionism, and I know Zionism from some quarters has gotten bad publicity, but Zionism is simply the belief that the Jewish people have a right to a secure homeland in the Middle East. And it was that vision, along with God's hand and God's timing, that brought about the rebirth of the state of Israel. And the problem is, achieving that security has been the ongoing struggle. As a result, to defend and to provide for that security, they have had to fight wars in 1948, 1954, 1967, and 1973. All of this revolves around the issue of a secure homeland in the Middle East. Even all of the so-called peace accords, the Oslo uh, Accord of 1993, that uh, was basically, well, we'll trade land for peace. That has not brought normalization. In fact, it has simply brought increased hostilities, increased terrorist attacks, and now a heightened debate over the status of the city of Jerusalem. And again, the Bible is absolutely on target because Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2, God says, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged uh, as well as Jerusalem on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All to try, all who try to move it will injure themselves. Here, God specifically points His finger and says, "Jerusalem 
is going to be the trigger of last day's events. It is there that you will see the final unfolding of the prophetic picture along with Ezekiel's vision. God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all people, a burdensome stone. Everyone who tries to move it is going to injure themselves. Someone has written and said, the great temptation will be for Jews and Christians to say and decide better to sacrifice the legacy of the Bible, abandon the nation of Israel, and take our chances at peace with a billion Muslims. The burden of a Jewish state, some will say, is just too great. God's clock is ticking. And the Bible says that Israel is God's time clock and the realization that we are faced with is that peace is a much harder task than anyone could imagine and will be what ultimately sets the stage for the final act. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 talks about Antichrist and says this king will make a seven-year treaty with the people but after half that time who will break his pledge and stop the Jews from all their sacrifices and their offerings then as a climax to his terrible deeds the enemy shall utterly defile the sanctuary of God but in God's time and plan his judgment will be poured out upon this evil one. In other words, this elusive thing called peace, that there is coming a time that there will be someone who comes on the world scene and seemingly is able to broker a lasting peace with the nation of Israel. They sign a covenant, a treaty of seven years, uh, uh, seemingly guaranteeing them peace. In the midst of that, though, everything is, uh, all the bets are called off. That treaty or that covenant is violated. Uh, Antichrist is revealed for who he really is. Uh, and the point I'm making this morning uh, is that the stage for all of this is set, the actors are all in place, uh, and the curtain is about to arise on the final act. And this time clock, the nation of Israel, has been set before us uh, in these last days to tell us and to speak to us and to declare that God is going to fulfill His Word and that the coming of the Lord draws near. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, told us to learn a lesson from the fig tree. He said, verse 32 of Matthew 24, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, I know Pastor Rob talked about the fig tree in another setting. But very clearly in the Bible, the fig tree is also used as a symbol of the nation of Israel. It is a symbol both of the land and its people. And Jesus is saying, having cursed the fig tree, the ending of his ministry, and then again referring to it, that the Jewish people who were going to wither from their roots. In the year 70 A.D., Jerusalem was sacked. 
by the Roman general Titus. Uh, the Jews were dispersed uh, to the four corners of the earth uh, for the next 1900 years. Jesus said that fig tree that was to wither from its roots uh, would again be there at the ending of the age uh, and it would be a major sign to watchful believers uh, that when they saw those things begin to come to pass that it would be a time clock, it would be a sign to them uh, that God was going to wrap things up uh, and that we could lift up our eyes and lift up our heads uh, knowing that our redemption draws near and that that generation would not pass away till all those things be fulfilled and to give a further guarantee Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my word shall never pass away on the world stage we have the nation of Israel which is God's time clock to the nations of the world the second thing I want to look at with you is Islam what I want to call the X factor you know the present day hostilities has some very very ancient roots you can go into the book of Genesis and there read in chapter 16 an uncomfortable but accurate prophecy about Ishmael and his descendants Ishmael who was the son of Abraham and his wife's handmaid Hagar Genesis 16 verse 11 the angel Lord says to Hagar behold you are with child and you will bear a son you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction he shall be a wild man his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of or one translation said in hostility with all his brethren many of your Arab peoples are the descendants of Ishmael and in this chapter God promised to bless Ishmael Ishmael was not abandoned God promised to bless Ishmael there was a specific plan and heritage but that plan and that heritage was different from God's plan and heritage for Isaac and the entire Middle East pivots on the hinge of that one point that ancient difference that ancient hostility between Isaac and Ishmael and one of the dirty little secrets that people don't want to talk about today, at least publicly, is that in our present day conflict, it really is all about religion. That's why I call this the X factor. It really is all about religion. That the roots of the Arab-Israeli conflict is over basic worldviews that are dictated to largely by religion, not by politics. One quote said, Islamic terrorism first entered the lexicon on a Beirut morning in 1983 when two suicide bombers destroyed the barracks of American and French peacekeepers. The American toll came to 241 dead. The planners, Shiites, inspired by Ayatollah Khomeini, claimed credit in the name of Islamic Jihad. For decades, modernizing Muslim thinkers had worked to demilitarize the concept of jihad. Struggle waged, quote, in the path of God. Secular revolutionaries had mothballed the term, employing the vocabulary of, quote, resistance and liberation. 
But it was an act of jihad that drove America from Lebanon with electrifying effect. A new era had begun. An era in which Muslim extremists interpreted their faith as a license to kill foreign, quote, enemies of God. Radical Muslim clerics scoured Islam's sacred texts for justifications of violence and found them. In the years to come, the clerics and the terrorists widened their license. At first, it included only, quote, intruders in Muslim lands, foreign forces, embassies, and civilians. Later, it was extended to include enemy installations in third countries. And finally, civilians in the lands of unbelief. No more red line could stop the escalation. So one of the things that has stepped onto the forefront of the world stage is the religion of Islam, and we are forced, uh, not only by recent events, but by the Word of God, to take a look at this. And probably one of the best descriptions that I have read in my own preparation is that Islam is a religion born in deception and weaned on violence. Now listen to me this morning. This is not just using this pulpit to rail on people and rail on religions, but it is an opportunity to honestly look at the facts. Born in deception and weaned on violence. The deception is in the year 600 A.D., about 600 years after Christ. There's an Arab shepherd named Muhammad who claimed to have received a visitation from and revelations from the angel Gabriel. The essence of these revelations is that God, that he referred to as Allah, had chosen him to bring to men the perfect and the complete truth, which he said had been lost. You know, every cult, every antichrist religion is always, be, you know, the truth's lost as if God somehow misplaces things and they have to rediscover it. And the revelation was that he had been chosen and he was the last in a series of prophets that includes Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. And that the Bible had lost and the Bible had distorted this original revelation. Basically, they're saying Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, all of these were Muslims. Uh, but the Bible has distorted all of this. And this is why the phrase, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, is repeated over and over and over again. And if I knew nothing else except that, I would know that we're dealing with a blatant deception and a blatant denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Quran says, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was not more than a messenger of Allah. He was nothing more than just a, another messenger in a long line of messengers, uh, Muhammad being the last, Muhammad being the greatest, chosen to bring God's perfect uh, and complete truth to mankind uh, and blatantly denying the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, not only that, but denying the cross because it is essentially a religion that offers salvation on the basis of works uh, that you never know. Maybe you'll make paradise, maybe not. And if you really want to be sure, then become a suicide bomber. But otherwise, uh, it's kind of up for grabs. But if you'll follow uh, and be submitted to the truth, then, you know, your chances are a lot better than people who aren't followers of Allah or Muhammad, his prophet. Talking about deception, folks. 
one that blatantly denies the person of Jesus Christ and that in and of itself tells us is a religion of Antichrist. And it was out of that deception that Islam grew as a religion of conquest. Under orders of Allah, Mohammed took up the sword to further finance his cause and from the year 622 A.D. until his death in 632 A.D., Mohammed fought 81 camp military campaigns subduing not only Mecca but all of Arabia and many surrounding areas as well. This is why to this very day this is a religion of conquest that Islamic doctrine divides the entire world into two regions. Dar al-Harb, which means a house of war, which is territories ruled by non-Muslims, and Dar al-Islam, which means the house of Islam, which uh, are nations ruled by Islam, which they say is destined to dominate all of the other former nations. And when you begin to understand that this is a religion of conquest, it begins to shed some light on a lot of the mixed messages uh, that you and I are hearing and receiving today. Statements, you know, we are not at war with Islam. We're at war with terrorism. Now, that is true. Our conflict is with those who would uh, commit terrorist acts uh, against uh, this nation or against uh, other innocent people, and that is true. But along with this, you're hearing things like, Islam is a benign and peaceful religion. It is a religion of peace and love. Islam wouldn't dare dream of doing the dastardly deeds of September 11th. Or others are saying there's nothing in Islam that condones this type of action. To which I would say, if that's true, then how do you account for multitudes of Muslims who were celebrating, celebrating the events of September 11th? Now, yes, there are Muslims who deplore those actions, I understand that. Our, you know, conflict is not with Islam per se. But what I am saying is that when you begin to understand the roots and when you begin to understand the spirit, we are looking at a religion of conquest. One man named Mateen Elas, who is a Saudi Arabian, who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, says these words, quote, finally, Islam is committed to the complete subjugation of the entire world to Allah. Through, though there is not consensus among Muslims concerning the use of force to advance Islam, there is unanimity concerning three fundamental principles. Islam is the one true religion meant to be universally accepted. Two, its ultimate goal is the establishment of a one-world theocracy where the laws of Islam become the laws of all societies. And three, all human beings will one day be either converted to Islam, subjugated under Muslim rule, or eliminated by the sword. Moderates claim terrorism has no place in Islam or the teachings of the Quran, but fundamentalists point to numerous texts in the Quran where Muhammad, as Allah's spokesman, commands his followers to fight and subdue all who resist Islam, if necessary, by killing them. 
You can read. That is the spirit. That is the nature. And that is what's being propagated today. And we could almost add to that also is that Islam has zero tolerance for Judaism and Christianity. Now, you can be a Muslim in the United States of America, no problem. But you know what? You can't be a Christian and uh, publicly pursue your faith in Afghanistan or numerous Islamic countries. Because Islam this morning, well, you saw someone say, well, what about atrocities done in the name of Christianity? That's true. There have been. But none of those were in harmony whatsoever with the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. You can study the Gospels from front to back over and over again. You'll find nothing in the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ that says that, you know, Christians need to go to war and, uh, uh, you know, the Crusades. And, and uh, you won't find that. And yet, the acts that we are talking about are in harmony with what the Quran teaches. Because that is the spirit of it. And Islam has a vision. And part of that vision is that the nation of Israel has no right to exist. That's their vision. There is far more sympathy in the Arab and in the Muslim world for Osama bin Laden than most people or the press or governments want to admit. There are some one billion Muslims in the world, about half of them think that Osama bin Laden is a hero. And they may not publicly demonstrate in the streets of, of various cities, but they believe that. That's why the question that has to be asked is, is peace possible? What about the Middle East? Is peace possible there? And the answer is theoretically yes. If and when terrorist groups renounce terrorism and simply accept the legitimacy of the state of Israel. But practically, peace is not possible when you begin to recognize the nature and the spirit of Islam because it will never accept the legitimacy of a non-Islamic country within the heart of Dar al-Islam, the world of Islam. They will never accept the presence of a non-Islamic country in that place. And the point is, is that we have come then full circle from these ancient roots of the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. We have come full circle because uh, Ezekiel tells us that these ancient roots serve as an end time catalyst igniting global conflict. And what Ezekiel 38 is all about is that catalog of nations allied with Russia or supported by Russia, who will one day uh, descend upon the land of a restored nation of Israel. And you can begin to read this catalog of nations. We read the nation of Persia. Biblically, biblical Persia is uh, synonymous with modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Ethiopia is modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan. Libya is uh, modern-day Libya and some of the North African countries. Gomer and Togomar are synonymous with the nation of Turkey today. And this confederacy of nations that is allied with or supported by Russia 
are one day going to descend on the land of Israel. And all of these are nations surrounding Israel today. The majority are Muslim nations. So that what you have today is a tiny nation of six million people surrounded with the hostility of 100 million Islamic countries. God says this is going to occur in the latter days. My personal conviction is that this will occur either right before or sometime right after the rapture. But in this conflagration, the Bible tells us that God has an appointment. That God will personally intervene as Israel's defender. My reason for thinking it might happen at this time or right after the rapture is God is going to deal with this. God personally is going to intervene. This would uh, allow for the building, uh, rebuilding of the temple, a lot of other things. Uh, but regardless, the truth is that God says, I have an appointment that he will personally intervene as Israel's defender and he will do so in such a way as to glorify and sanctify himself in the eyes of the nation of Israel, in the eyes of the nations of the world. There will be no question that God has done this. This is not going to be the result of political negotiation. God himself will intervene and show himself to be the defender of Israel, faithful to ancient covenant promises, not forgetful of his word. And the scripture tells us that all this will come to pass in the latter days. And again, let me repeat it. The stage is set. The actors are in place. And the curtain is about to ar arise on the final act. We talk finally about the United States as a standard bearer. Because the big question that lots of people are asking is where is the United States in prophecy? And there are a lot of voices that surround this issue. There are those who have made attempts to find the United States in prophecy in some rather vague and obscure scriptures. Some see the United States in references to the merchants or the young lions of Tarshish. But you know, you need to, when we ask that question, where is the United States in prophecy, you have to understand something. The United States did not exist as a nation for another 1,700 years after the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The United States did not exist as a nation for some 2,700 years after Ezekiel's prophecy. And so, you know, uh, we're talking about a nation that didn't exist. These other nations are, you know, America is a young pup on the block, folks compared to other nations of the world. There are those who argue from silence. And let me just say that a bad uh, uh, practice of biblical interpretation is try to argue from silence. And they argue that since there is no clear mention of the United States in prophecy, and they say, well, how can that be since the United States is such a world power? that that means that America will no longer be a major power or a major player on the world stage. 
because you don't read about it. So they argue from silence. What provoked a lot of this was a letter, newsletter from Hal Lindsey, who uh, is, is, uh, wrote about this and said uh, in, in the wake of September 11th, uh, he said something catastrophic will soon happen in the United States to cause power to shift to Europe. Bible prophecy clearly predicts this revived Roman Empire from within Europe to be the major power of the West and then the world. And, you know, and I read that. I thought, well, Hal, have you ever been to Europe? You know, I have been to Europe. And, uh, uh, you know, we're not talking about a world power. And so people argue from silence. And then there are others who... In the wake of a lot of what's happened, we want to make a strong statement, and I believe that there are some strong statements that need to be made. But what happens is that if we're not careful, we can venture into sensationalism, and a lot of people are saying, you know what, it's all over for America. This is the beginning of the end. There's a great deal of doom and gloom at preaching. Uh, because of September 11th, uh, God's going to judge the United States for her sins. Uh, Hal Lindsey, the same newsletter, said, what we're witnessing right now could be the beginning of the decline of the United States. So there's a lot of this doom and gloom. It's all over. America has any influence on the world stage is going to pass. Things are going to shift. Uh, and uh, let me clarify something this morning, is that America's sins are definitely many. Being civilized is not the same thing as being righteous. Lots of people can sing, God bless America, and they don't have any relationship with God whatsoever. I, 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 think, I think God, though, is involved that you know, all of a sudden we've done our best to keep God out of schools, out of government, out of every place, and now we're doing everything we can to get God involved. Hallelujah. You can sing God Bless America and not know Him at all. But if you're going to take this and say, well, God is going to judge America, fine. But you better line up every other nation as well because uh, none are any better and a lot of them are a whole lot worse. And so I believe that we need to refrain from arguments based on silence. And I want to set before you what I believe is a biblical mission. Where is the United States in prophecy? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and we'll read together a number of verses. Instead of trying to look for American obscure texts and let's look in some very plain ones. And I believe it will help us locate a number of things that will serve as a, a vision of a biblical mission for America. Matthew 21, this morning. Now, I'm going to read all of Matthew 21, beginning in verse uh, uh, let me get it, 33. I'm not going to read all of that, but Jesus told the parable of the householder. A man who owned a vineyard lent it out to tenant farmers... Every year at the time of harvest, he sent his servants to receive the fruits of that harvest. Now, this is Jesus as a prophet. 
Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. You will find Jesus Christ in a number of places uh, speaking prophetically. Matthew 24, that whole chapter is probably the most uh, familiar. But Jesus is beginning to prophesy here how that the owner of the vineyard again and again sent his servants and they neglected and they continued to abuse his servants. And Jesus in this parable gives us a statement of the Father's incredible love after sending all servant after servant and them being beaten, abused, killed. He said, finally, he is going to say, I'm going to send my only son. Surely they will reverence my son. And here we see the incredible love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How that the Father sent His only Son into the world. And rather than reverencing Him, the people said, This is the Son. If we kill Him, then the inheritance becomes ours. And Jesus prophesies His own crucifixion. He is prophesying His own death, His own crucifixion. He asks the question in verse 40. That when the owner returns, what is he going to do to those vine dressers? And they said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. Verse 41, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation that brings forth the fruit of it. I want you to look at those words. Now, I'm not saying that the kingdom of God is linked to any one nation. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and that out of every nation, out of every kindred, out of every people, out of every tongue will be gathered the glorious company of the redeemed of the Lord. But Jesus is saying here that in the gospel age, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. He's talking about the nation of Israel that had been God's covenant people. And it's going to be given to a nation. The fruit. And while you cannot tie this to just one sole nation, let me say this morning that America, from its inception has been a gospel-preaching nation. And that no other nation has produced more fruit out of the earth for the gospel than America. And you can begin to study, and this is, uh, I'm not going to just do an entire history lesson, but you can study the story of God's dealing with America. And it very clearly indicates a divinely appointed destiny that from its inception, God had His hand upon this nation. And whether you look at God's hand upon America's foundation and America's formation, Christopher Columbus clearly in his journals uh, talked about how he was chosen to bring the light of Jesus Christ to the new world and that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired him and guided him and directed him all this. You can see God's hand on the foundation and the formation of our nation. You can see God's hand on America's documents the documents that uh, gave definition to this nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, unlike any other document. There's no other nation in history and in this world that has a document that has survived unchanged for so long. 
God's hand upon those documents guaranteeing the citizens uh, the freedoms that they enjoy. You can see God's hand on America's preservation. You can see God's hand on America's revivals and awakenings. Yes, there have been many, many times that America has been in a backslidden condition and given over to ungodliness, but you can study American history unlike any other nation and read again and again and again of God's visitations and revivals breaking up, sweeping multitudes into the kingdom of God. No other nation has a history of revivals and awakening like America. You can see God's hand on America's generosity. Yes, she has many flaws and many failings, but there's no generation in history that has been as liberal and generous uh, to other nations as America has. This is not nationalism this morning. This is not some imbalanced patriotism speaking. I am not saying that America is without fault or sin. I am not minimizing our slide into decadence, but what I am saying is God has a unique purpose for America, especially in the last days. And the confidence for this future is built on America's end time mission. So if you want to find the United States in prophecy, turn over another page or two to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 14. Instead of trying to think, well, you know, the young lions of Tarshish may mean this because they came from here and that led to this. And that. Well, here's something very clear. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, in this gospel of the kingdom, we'll be preaching all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Say, how is this the United States in prophecy? Jesus said, in the last days, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preaching all the world. And when that task and that mission is accomplished, then the end will come. And there is one nation more instrumental for the fulfillment of that prophecy than any other, and that's the United States of America. Eighty to eighty-five percent of all finances for missions, for world evangelism and the work of the church, eighty to eighty-five percent of all finances for that comes from America. Eighty percent of all missionaries currently preaching the gospel in the nations of the world come from America. Our government that allows for tax deductions, for charitable giving that was instituted to benefit and bless the church and the preaching of the gospel. As a nation, we have no restrictions on sending funds overseas. You can send as much money overseas from America as you want to. You can't do that in other nations. Just live in Canada and you'll know. They want to, and down to their penny pinchers, down to every little, well, where's all, you know. In America, you can just send thousands and multiply thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars overseas. No problem. Modern missionary movement was birthed and sustained in America. America has an atmosphere and a tradition of religious freedom unrivaled by any other nation that for over 225 years the church of Jesus Christ has experienced a freedom to worship, a freedom to preach the gospel unhindered like any other place. What this means is that God has a prophetic purpose for the United States in the last days. And that prophetic purpose is related to the church and is related directly to the mission of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. And then, and you know, say, so, well, God, America, it's all over. Well, if America is all over, who's going to fulfill that? France? 
Switzerland? Scandinavia? Am I saying the only Christians are not at all? But I'm talking about a unique purpose and a unique mission in the last days. And you know what? If God's through with America, we're uh, so close to the rapture. You better, you know, you better run to the, you better start right now. Get out of your seat right now. You better run here because you're in big trouble. You want to find the United States in prophecy? Look at this verse right here. And I believe until that is fulfilled, this gospel shall be preached in all the world, all the nations for a witness, and then the end will come. But until that's fulfilled, our nation is not going down the tubes. As long as there is a believing remnant and churches who will preach the cross and preach the blood of Jesus Christ and preach and live this book, God is not going to turn his back on America. Now, he may discipline America. No problem. He may correct us. And God knows we need it. He may humble us. He may rebuke us. But he's not going to turn his back on us. And that prophecy in Matthew 21 says that he will... Lend out the land to others who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Let me just tell you, in the ending of the age, there is a season of harvest that God has ordained before the coming of the Lord that he will do all that's possible to gather in that end-time harvest. And there will be a people living in the ending of the age who will render unto him their fruits in their season, that season of harvest. What I am saying this morning is that America has a prophetic purpose and it is directly related to the church and the mission of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus prophesied about a national purpose, a national preservation, and a national partitioning in the last days prior to the millennial kingdom. Turn over one other page to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. We'll wind this up very soon. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, I have read that parable numerous times. It goes on, well, when do, you know, because, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And, well, when do we do that? He said, well, that you've done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. I've always read that and applied that individually personal acts of compassion, personal acts of, of, of kindness. But if you read in the context, he's talking to nations. He's going to gather. When Jesus returns in his glory, he will gather all the nations before him, and he will divide, he will separate the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And very clearly, he's saying that there are some nations that are going to continue. There are going to be nations that continue into the millennium. So what qualifies then for those to continue in the millennium? Those that are sheep on his right hand, he will say, enter into that kingdom. And what qualifies, he says, in that you have done this to one of these, the least of these, my brethren. I believe is a reference to the church and the nation of Israel. 
that those by reason of their attitude to the church, the preaching of the gospel of the nation of Israel, are numbered amongst those nations, those sheep nations that are separated and enter into the millennial kingdom. And the point I'm making is that America is not going to disappear. It's not going to go down the tubes. I know it doesn't sound as good as to get up there and rail judgment on America. And again, I've already said that, you know what, there are a lot of things in America that deserve judgment. If you're going to start handing out, you know, I read an, uh, an email that, uh, well, it's because of American Airlines policy towards gays and homosexuals. That's why, you know, one of the American Airlines uh, jets were chosen. Well, listen, if you're going to make that ludicrous kind of interpretation, you ought to go into, into Amsterdam. You don't want to talk about morals. You want to talk about, you know, Amsterdam where they, you know, prostitutes uh, uh, like you walk down the street in store windows advertising homosexuals. Uh, going to Australia where their laws uh, regarding homosexuality are far uh, uh, more uh, liberal than even in America. The point is that God has a purpose. And the three reasons God has blessed America are also the three reasons why Satan hates America. Those three reasons are, number one, Jesus said, I will build my church, that America has given its people freedom to preach, freedom to worship, and a safe haven for the church for 225 years. Secondly, it is the gospel preached to the nations of the world, and end, which will have an end-time fulfillment. And thirdly, America's support for the nation of Israel. Because God's promise to Abraham still is in effect. I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. Those three things. Now, if we, if we turn from any of those three things, we are in trouble. But those three things have brought a distinct blessing and a distinct purpose to the United States of America. Those are three things that we need to continue to do. And in these last days, especially believers, we need to do like never before. And the point that I'm making as I close is that I believe that there's hope for America. That this is a message of hope. It is a message of warning. It's a message of instruction. But it carries with it the note of hope. That doesn't mean that there won't be further challenges to America. I believe there will be. doesn't mean that there won't even be worse things. There possibly could be. It doesn't mean that we haven't fallen short. But what it means is that in prayer, what our focus needs to be is God send revival upon our land, uh, visit us once again, that people might repent uh, and turn and give their hearts and give their lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, let us be about the business uh, of lifting up Jesus and preaching the gospel in the nations of the world. And let us do that until the end, because when that time is over, then God turns the page, uh, He turns His attention back to the nation of Israel to wrap it all up. Until that time, there's hope for America. There's a purpose. Uh, and we as the church, we as believers need to be diligent in prayer. We need to be committed in our lifestyle. We need to be sold out to God. Uh, we need to be interceding for our land uh, and say, God, I want to do all I can uh, to bring in the harvest that you've ordained for these last days. There's no other nation that can fulfill those prophecies that Jesus spoke, like the United States. Do we need God? Like never before. But I believe that God in His grace and mercy is sending us a wake-up call. I'll say much more about that Wednesday night. 
But God in his grace and mercy is sending a wake-up call because there's some people who have been asleep and he's waking them up before the bridegroom returns uh, and the door is shut and it's too late. One final verse and then we'll done Romans chapter 13. Turn there. Let me sum this up with some personal application and exhortation that really sums up what our response should be. These three things have stepped onto the forefront of the world stage. Israel, God's time clock to the nations. Islam, the X factor, the antichrist religion and spirit that is behind so much of the turmoil and terror in the world today and the United States that has a divinely appointed mission that's related to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the last days. Now, let me just say something. If you're not committed and you're not sold out to Jesus and you're not doing the will of God, don't try to uh, content yourself. Well, bless God, I'm an American. Because you know what? You'll stand before God and you'll be lost like anybody else. It was just, well, I, I, I sang God Bless America. I, you know what? I, uh, the Diamondbacks game, I sang right along in the seventh inning. I, yeah, God Bless America. I, I'm, I'm, I, that makes me saved, doesn't it? No. You know, I'm all for dusting off our patriotism. That's a good thing. But God wants you to do more than just dust off your patriotism. He wants you to get your heart right with Him. He wants you to realize the days, the times that we're living in. He wants you to begin to hear that there's a cry going forth. Get yourself ready. The bridegroom's coming. And these three entities have stepped onto the forefront of the world stage. And I believe each have a purpose, each have a destiny that the Bible clearly speaks about. And to you and I sitting here this morning, there's an exhortation beginning in verse 11 of Romans chapter 13. Let's read this this morning. And you need to locate yourself here. It says, And do this, knowing the time, that now is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You can take these words, you can write down three things that God's saying. So relevant, applicable to our time. The first thing God says is you better wake up. Say wake up. Say it louder. If you're having a hard time, stay, say it one more time for the benefit of those who are nodding off right now. God said, you better wake up. Now is high time to wake up out of our sleep. God said, you better wake up. You are spiritually dull and asleep. And you better wake up. Second thing he says is you better clean up Say that. Yeah. Say it like you mean it. Yeah. He said, you better clean up. He says, you better put off the works of darkness. You better not walk in revelry 
and drunkenness, in lewdness, in lust, in strife and envy. You say, well, I'll, I'll be doing all that in the rapture. No, if you're living in that, you're not ready. Jesus is not going to rapture you out of the bar. He's not going to rapture you out of the strip club. He's not going to rapture you out of your unholy and unclean relationships and lifestyle. He said, you better clean up. You better get serious about Jesus. Put these things off and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be as identified with Christ as you are right now with the clothes you're wearing. And the final thing he says is look up. Say that. Look up. Say it like you really mean it and you're wanting it. <laughs> look up. Because he says, for now, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Jesus is coming again. Say, so, well, you know, I've heard that all my life. Well, you know what? He's a whole lot closer than when you first heard it. That's what he's saying. Wake up. Clean up. Look up. Because your salvation is a whole lot nearer than when you first believed. You and I are eyewitnesses. Bible prophecy being fulfilled in our generation. There ever a time that you need to look up because your redemption is drawing near. And look up because my answer is, and I'm not looking to, you know, the government, I'm, I'm looking to Jesus as the answer. There ever a time that that needs to be ringing in your soul it is right now. You wake up you so asleep spiritually, Jesus, you know, atomic bomb go off, you wouldn't hear it, you'd sleep right, you're going to sleep right through the rapture, you're going to wake up in the middle of the tribulation, well, what happened? What, where, where you been? You've been asleep? Yeah, that's just, that's, that's a problem. You clean up. You don't think that the Holy Spirit is saying nowadays, you better clean your act up, you better clean some stuff up. Because those things are excess baggage that'll drag you down and hinder you in the last days. You better be looking up. Jesus, I thank you. All these things, yours, it's, it's, it's there in the Bible. Hey, Lord, I'll get my eyes on you. Keep my heart right with God. Live my life. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me this morning, if you would. I already knew before I preached this morning in announcing that I intended to preach on this this morning, I knew that I had bitten off a very, very big chunk of And if you have never preached or taught on prophecy, you don't realize that it's very difficult to preach on prophecy in, you know, a half hour because there's so much. You're trying to set the stage, the background, and giving people understanding and that's really why no message, one message, can ever uh, completely do that. Uh, you have to uh, personally, in your own study, in your own commitment to the study of Scripture and God's Word, you need to be an informed believer. That doesn't mean that our entire focus in life is prophecy. It shouldn't be. 
but a, a very real part uh, of any balanced believer and committed believer's life is an awareness of Bible prophecy and living their life in light of the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I've bitten off a big chunk. You know, you could preach on Israel, Islam, and, and, and the United States in three separate messages. And the purpose this morning is simply to provoke your thinking and stir your thinking and your own personal study and your own personal awareness and preparation and faith. But the point is, this morning, beloved, we are seeing these things unfold. And the events of September 11th is just simply another and perhaps a much stronger wake-up call along the way where God is saying, hey, lift up your head, look up. Your redemption draws near. The things are in place. The stage is set. The actors are in place. The curtain is about to arise. Be ready. Wake up. Clean up. Look up. Get excited about Jesus. Be committed. Stay committed to Christ. Sinking, sitting on the platform this morning. What a tragedy. Some people who serve God, been faithful for years and decades, and now when we really see things winding up and wrapping up, maybe that they become weary and they begin to fall by the wayside. What a waste. What a horrible thing. Now's the time to wake up. If you need God's touch, if you need God to renew you and help you, He'll do that. 